All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. July 19th, 2012. Skype class reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 18. Maharaj Brickett, Cursed by a Brahmin Boy, Text 44. Tadadjana papamu paichanan vayan. Yanastanatasya basor vulumbakat. Parasparam nadati shapanti vin. Parasparam. Ganti Shapanti Vrinjate That is a really hard line. Let's try that again. Parasparam Gnanti Shapanti Vrinjate Pasun Pasun Shri Or Tan Puru Dasyavo Jana Tat For this reason Adya From this day Naha Upon us Upon us Papam. Reaction of sin. Upaiti. Will overtake. Anunvayam. Disruption. Yat. Because. Nasta Abolished Natasya of the monarch Vasaho of wealth Lumpakat being plundered. Parasparam between one another. Ganti will kill. Shapanti 
will do harm. Vrinjite will steal. Pashun animals. Striha women. Artan riches. Puru greatly. Dasyavaha thieves. Janaha the mass of people. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Due to the termination of monarchical regimes and the plundering of people's wealth by rogues and thieves, there will be great social disruption. People will be killed and injured, and animals and women will be stolen. And for all these sins, we shall be responsible. Purport. The word naha, we, is very significant in this verse. Now, it's, we should just note that Srila Prabhupada's translation of for all these sins we shall be responsible, he's getting that from the Sanskrit, that upon us the reaction of sins will overtake, that we will, we will be overtaken by the actions, reactions of sins. Prabhupada's, in the word for word, said it like that, and in the translation says, we will be responsible. Purport, the word naha, we, is very significant in this verse. The sage rightly takes the responsibility of the brahmanas as a community for killing monarchical government and thus giving an opportunity to the so-called Democrats. Now, Prabhupada here doesn't mean Democrats as one political party in America. Remember, this was written in India before Prabhupada came to America. He meant Democrats as anybody pushing democracy. Who are generally plunderers of the wealth of the state subjects. The so-called Democrats capture the administrative machine without assuming responsibility for the prosperous condition of the citizens. Everyone captures the post for personal gratification, and thus instead of one king, a number of irresponsible kings grow up to tax the citizens. It is foretold herein that in the absence of good monarchical government, everyone will be the cause of disturbance for others by plundering riches, animals, women, etc. Tadajana papam upaichanan vayan so being willing to take responsibility, Shamakarishi Prabhupada said felt that the whole Brahmana community was responsible for the mistake of his son. He felt at least that he was also responsible. He didn't just say, well, my son did it while I was in Samadhi, so what can I do? It's his fault. After all, he's 12 years old. Uh, it's, it's his responsibility. No, he took responsibility. And Prabhupada is contrasting that with today people who don't take responsibility. And he's talking particularly, of course, about government leaders who want to have the authority, they want to have the perks, but they don't want to have the responsibility. And Prabhupada says, everyone will be the cause of disturbance for others. And that's basically our present situation, that people in general are taking positions without taking responsibility. 
I'm sure we've all experienced people in our lives who take positions without taking the responsibility of those positions. I have experienced lots of people like that. Even on a very small level, just yesterday, I got some software, and the software messed up something on my computer, and when I called the company, I was first given from one person to another person to another person to another person for like two hours, and finally the person said, sorry, you'll have to contact your computer manufacturer, and I said, it has nothing to do with the computer manufacturer, it has to do with you, it's your software. Sorry, lady, that's all we can do. So this is, you know, we experience that on a small level over and over again with people. They want the benefits. They want you to buy their things. They want some position of authority. They want the perks that come with the situation. But they're not willing to actually take the responsibility. When it comes down to taking the responsibility, then they say, too bad. You know, it's not our fault. And this is from the highest levels of, you know, the teachers. We even had an instance at one, I don't want to be too specific, anyway, it was a a program of teaching with devotees, and it was a devotee who was teaching aspects of the Shastra. And the way that he was teaching simply increased people's doubts rather than their faith. So he was teaching in a very academic way, of, well, these people say this and these people say this. Well, in this Shastra it says that Shiva is supreme. In this Shastra it says that Vishnu is supreme. In this Shastra it says Durga is supreme. In this Shastra it says Krishna is supreme. And so many people who went to this devotee's classes, they were coming and saying, you know, I don't know what I believe anymore. Is Krishna supreme because he's actually supreme? Or maybe we just have our own particular sect like any other sect. And this the devotee who taught refused to take responsibility. He said, I'm just uh, giving the facts, and if it disturbs people, it disturbs people, oh well. You know, and we talked to him and said, well, if you're going to disturb people, you have to also give them a way as how to deal with their disturbance. And he said, no, that's not my responsibility. So this is being done in general by the so-called Brahmins of the present age. The so-called Brahmins of the present age, they teach philosophy that causes havoc in the world to teach that we're nothing but a material machine and that the way that progress is made is that those who are strong, they get rid of those who are weak. The fittest survive. And that that's good. Are we having really bad problems again? Okay. Okay, we're back online. So we have the, the, just as I was saying before, we have the so-called brahmanas. They're teaching theories of reality such that we're only machines and that the fittest survive. And then they're not taking any responsibility for the effect of their philosophy. That people are thinking, okay, life is just for getting what I want at the expense of others. And then Prabhupada's specifically talking here about the satriyas, the rulers, where the modern rulers, they want their position, but they say, well, we're not really responsible. We're not responsible for the state of the economy. We're not responsible for the pollution of the environment. What can we do? You know, we're doing the best we can. And they're not, of course, to some extent, that's true. We've set up systems of democracy. It's not just, as Prabhupada calls it, the Democrats. But it's not just the people, but it's the system that the people have created. 
they've created a system where the leaders are not even able to take responsibility. They've removed that ability from the government because they feel they will misuse it. So therefore you have politicians who say, we will do this and we will do that, and they don't even have the power given them to do this and to do that. And then you have, of course, the Vaishas who are happy to make money off of us, but they give us inferior products. They give us food that makes us sick. <laughs> you know, they, they're damaging our environment. They're damaging the natural resources. They're damaging the animals. So they're, they want the money. They're happy to take our money, but they're not really going to take the responsibility of giving us something of high quality in return for our money. And then you have the entertainers. So the entertainers, again, they're happy to take our money, they're happy to get fame and prestige, but they're producing movies and plays and songs and art that degrades people's consciousness, and they don't take any responsibility for that. Many, many years ago, I remember my father telling me there was some movie about gang warfare, and some of the people in the movie theater killed each other in the middle of the movie, because the movie actually incited them to kill. So the people who make the movie, they don't take any responsibility for that. People who make violent video games or whatever, they're just, they don't care that, okay, here we have these young men that instead of using their energy to learn a skill and get a job, they're wasting it on mastering some game and wasting their human energy. But who cares if they have a wasted life as long as they're giving us their money? And the same even with our physical goods. You know, you go to the shop and you, you buy a bookcase or you buy a table and they're happy to take your money, but they're giving you something that's just trash, that just falls apart very quickly. It isn't, doesn't have any high quality to it. And they don't really take responsibility. So this is the general mood, right? Or even when it comes down to a, a personal level that people getting married but not taking responsibility. They want the perks, but not the responsibility. Half the time, they don't even get married. They just live together, let me have the sex, and let me have the companionship, and so forth. But I'm not going to actually take any responsibility for you. You know, as soon as things are not very nice for me, then I'm going to leave. And, and they're, they're not even willing to make a show of taking responsibility. But even people who are married, you know, at least in the Western countries, half of all marriages end in divorce. And for second marriages, it's higher. And for third marriages, it's higher. So, you know, I want the perks of the situation, but I'm not willing to take responsibility. And the same with parents and their children. Or just the whole abortion, you know, let me have the benefits of sex without the responsibility of sex. If there was a child, kill it. So this is it's a general mood when it comes from the highest leaders and down to the average person. Let me take the pleasure without the responsibility. So that's what we call v-karma. Krishna says, without sacrifice, you can't live happily in this life or the next. And he says that he creates and maintains and destroys by penance only. And such a nice verse in the Bhagavad Gita that the all-pervading transcendence is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. So sacrifice means that I pay for my pleasures. 
If I want to be a Brahmana, like Shamakarishi wants to be a Brahmana and wants to have the power and the influence of a Brahmana, he's also willing to take responsibility, and he's taking responsibility even beyond what he personally did. I mean, of course, it was his son, so you can say that even nowadays parents are held responsible for the activities of a young child. But Prabhupada says here he's taking the Brahmin community as a whole, saying the Brahmin community as a whole has some responsibility and we will get a sinful reaction. Sinful reactions are basically forced responsibility. So the way the world is set up, as Krishna says, I create, maintain, and destroy by penance only, is if you don't take voluntary responsibility, you take involuntary responsibility. If you're not willing to voluntarily go through some sacrifice and some difficulty in order to get your facility, then you'll have involuntary sacrifice. You know, if you're not willing to do the sacrifice of cleaning your room, you have the sacrifice of living in a dirty room. It, it just, even on a, on a day-to-day level, if you're not willing to do the sacrifice of eating only what you need, then you have to do the sacrifice of walking around in an awkward, overweight body and the sacrifice of having so many diseases that have to do with that overweight body, and etc., so it's to live without sacrifice is not possible. The all-pervading transcendence is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. We could say that sacrifice and responsibility is the ultimate truth. And this can also be explained as sanatan dharma. The sanatan dharma is to serve, to give. And this is true even of Krishna. Krishna is the ultimate unlimited giver, the all-pervading transcendence is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. So the Supreme Lord himself is constantly giving, and the position of the jiva is to give. Of course, the conditioned jiva doesn't want to give. The conditioned jiva wants to take. That's the position of the conditioned jiva. Let me take. So one way of taking is let me just get some enjoyment, some pleasure, some facility, and I will do nothing. I will simply be lazy. And I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll blame others, I'll make excuses, basically blame and excuses as to why I can't properly sacrifice for the facility that I have. And that can include taking the perks. We were talking the other day about that one gets benefits from being in some position and gets some sort of enjoyment or some sort of fame or some sort of money. And it can also refer to taking the authority without responsibility. Let me tell you what to do. Let me have some power over others. But when it comes to how things are going, when it comes to the results of my decision, then again, it's just blame and excuses. So again, this is called V-karma. And Prabhupada compares V-karma to stealing And it's hard to understand this, perhaps, because our modern society is a society of v-karma, where stealing pleasure without taking responsibility for it is basically the norm. You know, here it talks about stealing animals and women. So people using animals without taking care of them. Let me take the eggs from the chicken, and the poor chicken has to stay in this little cage where it can hardly move and is suffering their whole life. Let me not take any responsibility for the chicken. Let me take the milk from the cow, but not take responsibility for the cow. Let me just kill the cow as soon as she doesn't produce quite as much milk, and let me just kill the bulls. I won't actually take any responsibility for taking care of them. 
let me take the food from the earth without responsibility to take care of the earth without any sacrifice to take care of the earth I'll just pour a bunch of chemicals in the earth to force the earth to produce more which is the kind of thing Hiranyakashipu did he forced the earth to produce in all seasons you know, it's, it's a general mood like let me live with someone without marriage let me have sex without children uh, let me have money let me get money without paying taxes you know, on and on and on and on and on so our general mood is like that. When I was in graduate school, one of my professors required us to read a book called The Cheating Culture. And after you read this book, you really felt like you were in a culture of thieves. And it's funny, after I read the book, I went to the professor and said, I have something I need to tell you, you know, some of the students cheated on it, one of the tests, and he looked at me and he laughed and laughed. He said, every single student who reads this book comes to me with some kind of confession. But when you see the pervasiveness of the cheating and the cheating mentality, the stealing mentality, here in the verse it's talking about harm and stealing. Rinjite will steal. Ananti will kill. So harming others, killing others, and, and stealing as soon as the people on the top stop taking responsibility and stop sacrificing, then the whole, which what Shamagrishi is saying here, the whole society will become like that. And, you know, we're proud of it. If we can get something, if we can get something without having to pay the price for it, then we're very proud of it. We think, okay, I've done something really great. I've gotten away with stealing. So, of course, the step above that is karmakanda. Karmakanda means that I see what is my legitimate God-given enjoyment. Each of us has a legitimate God-given enjoyment according to our particular psychophysical nature and our particular status. So what is my enjoyment? And then I willingly pay the sacrifice. Of course, karmakanda is I'm paying the sacrifice willingly, uh, but my purpose is the enjoyment. So I think of V-karma as you're going to a store and you're stealing. And karmakanda is I go to the store and I pay my money, but I don't have any real relationship with the people in the store. I'm going there, you know, I'm paying my money just because I understand that otherwise I'm going to suffer. It's like one devotee said yesterday, I want to do bhakti because otherwise I'll suffer. Of course, that was a little facetious, but... That's the, the view of the person in karmakanda is like that. You know, I'm paying for my goods not exactly because I want to pay for my goods, but because I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to jail. You know, the, the mood is still I want to enjoy, and I figured out that by doing sacrifice is the only way I'm really going to enjoy. That's my focus. Then karma yoga is... I start to focus more, instead of on enjoyment, I start to focus more on material purification. My level of responsibility increases. So in Karmakanda, I'm paying the sacrifice, and I still may be enjoying certain things in the world as a result of my sacrifice, but my mood is that I'm doing these things for purification rather than for enjoyment. I'm doing my responsibility as a husband, a father, a king, a brahmin, or whatever, for my own self-purification, for my own liberation. And then, of course, in Gyan Yoga and Dhyan Yoga, the focus is even more 
on sacrifice so that those in Gyan Yoga, and certainly in Jnana Yoga, they're withdrawing themselves from the world. They're not taking the pleasures of the world. They're focusing almost entirely on the sacrifice. Now, from the point of view of, an, of a karma kanda person or a vikarma person, those in Gyan Yoga, certainly those in Gyan Yoga, uh, they don't seem to be having any pleasure at all. Now, someone in Bhakti Yoga, uh, what we're doing is we're saying, I want to give this sacrifice to the Lord of Sacrifice. Yagyartat kamano natra loko yam karma bandha. I want to give my sacrifice to the Lord, to the Yajna Purush, not out of duty in the mode of goodness for purification, but out of love, out of real gratefulness, and even beyond gratefulness, out of love. And whatever I enjoy, I enjoy as prasadam, as Bhakti Sarasvati so nicely says in his purport to Brahma Samhita, text 61 that whatever pleasure I get and whatever difficulty I get in life, I accept that this is the grace of the Lord. And I take pleasure in the grace of the Lord, whether it comes in materially pleasurable objects or materially not pleasurable objects. And my life is one of happy, loving responsibility. I mean, Prabhupada gives the analogy that the, the parents enjoy the burden of the child. The child is certainly a burden, there's no question. Children are burdens. Uh, But the parents take that burden, at least most of the time, with pleasure. Or Prabhupada talks about the burden of the husband on the young wife. You know, that that's a, a burden taken with pleasure. So we all have experiences also where we take, even materially, where we take some sacrifice and it's very pleasurable. The interesting irony is that if you try to enjoy without sacrifice, as I said before, you will sacrifice anyway. You'll get a sinful reaction because you're stealing. And to enjoy something stolen is simply painful. You can't really enjoy something that's stolen. If I've stolen something from you and I'm enjoying it, I'm living with constant fear of getting caught. I don't have peace. And Krishna says, how can there be any happiness without peace? The suffering of the conditioned souls in Kali Yuga is primarily that they're trying to enjoy without suffering. As Prahlad Maharaj said, we're all happy, and as soon as we look for happiness, we become miserable. What people don't understand, it's not exactly that the material world is miserable, but that the consciousness of stealing causes you simply misery. As soon as you try to enjoy without responsibility, your enjoyment itself becomes sacrifice, and you get involuntary forced sacrifice. So your whole life becomes a sacrifice. Your whole life becomes tapasya. Tapa can also be translated as misery. That's the mode of ignorance. And Krishna says the mode of ignorance, there's no happiness at all. I mean, there's some concept that I'm doing something bad and getting away with it, but that's not really happiness. And what's interesting is that when you sacrifice willingly out of love, then not only do you truly get to enjoy the prasadam that Krishna sends you, and even in the spiritual world, after Krishna eats the gopis and etc., they're enjoying the prasadam. 
So not only do you actually get to, that's real enjoyment. Not only do you get real enjoyment, but your sacrifice also becomes enjoyable. As Krishna says in 4.24, everything merges into transcendence. When you, do your, when you do your sacrifice willingly, out of love, then it, it ceases to be a sacrifice. I mean, how interesting that Krishna says, I'm creating, maintaining, and destroying by penance only. Why would Krishna have to do penance? He hasn't done anything wrong. And Krishna is the supreme enjoyer. Bhokturam. He's Bhokturam Yagatapasam. He's the enjoyer of all sacrifices and austerities. So Krishna is if the all-pervading transcendence is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice, and if Krishna does everything through penance, it must be pleasurable. You know, we look at it and say, ooh, irresponsibility, that's going to hurt. Let me just take the authority. Let me just take the pleasure. And if I do the sacrifice, it's like, let me do it as little as possible, as short as possible. Let me just get the sacrifice done so I can hurry up and enjoy the, the result that I paid for. Let me pay as little as possible and just pay it quickly and get it over with so I can you know, take home the thing from the shop and enjoy. But the higher levels of yogis, whether jnana yogis, jnana yogis, or bhakti yogis, even to some extent karma yogis, understand that it's the sacrifice itself that's relishable. The all-pervading transcendence is eternally situated in acts of sacrifice. It's the giving that's enjoyable. If you're giving to the right person, and if you're giving out of love. Now, giving to another conditioned jiva with the idea of getting something back is not pleasurable, but giving to Krishna just because you love him is pleasurable. After all, Krishna is giving to all of us just because he loves us, even though we don't reciprocate with him basically at all. Krishna is giving to the atheists who hate him. And, and why is Krishna doing it? Believe me, he wouldn't do it if he didn't get some pleasure out of it. Everything Krishna is doing is pleasurable. It's not that it's some sort of suffering for Krishna. To give to the atheists and the demons. You know, Krishna's giving facility. I've talked about this before. He's giving facility to the mosquitoes who are so envious. They want to live on the blood of others and spread diseases. I mean, what kind of a mentality would it take to get such a body? Or a tick. You know, I met a devotee the other day who was suffering from Lyme disease. You know, one little tick bite. What kind of jiva would get the body of a tick? Suck the blood of others and spread disease. Or, you know, poison ivy, you just touch it and then you suffer for weeks. So what kind of living entity gets such a body? Or a snake body? But Krishna's maintaining them. Right? Satcharacharam, those that move, those that don't move, all living entities. Krishna's maintaining them. And he's enjoying that. He's enjoying maintaining the living entities. Everything Krishna does is pleasurable. So Krishna's enjoying giving and sacrificing, even when there's no reciprocation. It's his pleasure to give, because he's giving out of love. Yesterday I was working on a a course, what they call in Europe a module, for our new upcoming education, bachelor's accredited, bachelor's degree at Bhaktivedanta College. And I was putting together a, one particular lesson on motivation. 
And so one of the theories of motivation, the professor was saying that there's three kinds of relationships. A dominance relationship where I tell other people what to do and they have to do it. A business relationship where you know I give somebody something and they give me something of equal exchange. And then a community kind of relationship where we share without dominating and without thinking in terms of exact exchanges. And in thinking about this, I thought that it's very, very rare that we actually have a pure community relationship. That even in our so-called sharing relationships, generally some people dominate others, and generally there's some sense of fairness of exchange. You know, it's a fact that if you eat dinner with your family and then you say to your family, well, how much do I owe you? And they'd be offended. Uh, But the fact is also that people are watching. They are keeping score. They are thinking, you know, there's some relationship books about husband and wife where they talk about how men and women keep score. How much do they owe? And and how, you know, and we're always thinking, how much does this person owe me? It it takes a tremendous amount of detachment and self-control not to think like that. To think, okay, I've given, you know, so much, so much to this cousin or this uncle or this brother-in-law or this, you know, child even. I was once at a Sunday feast where there was a woman there. She was uh, breastfeeding her baby and she had an older child, maybe four or five years old. She asked him to get her a drink of water and he wouldn't do it. And she said, I gave you the milk from my body for two years and you won't even give me a glass of water. So this is, you know, our general mood is we're keeping score. We don't really have in our human relationships a pure serving mood, a pure communal mood as long as we're in conditioned life. We may try to do that. We may think that we're doing that. We may strive for that. But we keep sliding into either a dominance mode or a business mode. Uh, so Prahlad Maharaj said to Nusingadev, I'm not going to be a merchant. I'm not serving you because I wanted something in exchange. I'm just serving you out of love. So how can we come to this level of taking responsibility? You know, what kind of responsibility are we willing to take? I remember once going to a class where the it was a sannyasi giving class, and he said, you know, to what extent are we just living off the riches of our father's institution, and to what extent are we really giving to the mission? So, you know, in the early days when Srila Prabhupada founded ISKCON, there wasn't much to take. There just wasn't. You know, we, we had to live 12 in a room, sleeping on the floor with one little box of stuff. Sometimes people didn't even have a box of stuff. You know, in some temples there was just shared one big communal box of stuff. It wasn't even your personal box. And all day we were just giving to the mission. So, but there can be a tendency that, oh, let me just take and not give. Let me get into a stealing mentality. So in whatever area of service we have, whatever area of life we have, we can think, do I want the pleasure, do I want the authority without the responsibility? If we're not yet pure devotees, then to some extent we're contaminated with that mentality. If we think we're not, 
uh, then we would be swimming in a sea of transcendental bliss. And we'll find that the mind will say those sort of things. Well, I've given so much, what have they given me? You know, what am I getting back? What's my business exchange? In the business mentality or in the dominance mentality, we may think I'm the Bokhtaram Yogitabhasam. I'm meant to be the enjoyer. Everyone else is supposed to sacrifice for me. I'm not supposed to do any sacrifices. But if we want to become happy by sacrificing, Yagnartat Karmano Natram, Loko Yam Karmabandana, Taratam Karmakanteya, Mukta Sangha Samachara, we have to sacrifice for the right person. Bokhtaram Yogitabhasam. Krishna is the enjoyer of our sacrifices. As soon as I think that the enjoyer of my sacrifices, my government, my husband, my wife, my parents, my children, even my society of devotees, then I will not be happy. I have to have the right person for whom I'm sacrificing. And then I have to sacrifice, not because I want to get something back, not because... I'm afraid of suffering a sinful reaction if I do, uh, not even for my own purification, but out of love, because Krishna is so wonderful that no matter how he treats me, whether Krishna's prasadam comes in the form of, you know, tasty gulabjamins, or whether Krishna's prasadam comes in the form of a broken leg, you know, however Krishna's prasadam comes, that's still, he's always my Lord and Master. If he appears before me, or if he doesn't appear before me, if he comes and says, okay, you've seen me once, bye-bye, you're not going to see me again in this lifetime, that still I love him, and still I want to sacrifice for him. That kind of sacrifice, right? Savaipam samparo dharma yato daktir that sacrifice will satisfy the self. Because even the most uh, irredeemable thief tries to sacrifice sometimes. It's our nature. It's our dharma. It's our sanatan dharma. So we make attempts at sacrifice, which end up being painful. And we say, oh, I'm not going to sacrifice anymore. We don't realize that the problem is not sacrifice and responsibility. The problem is either the object of our sacrifice or the mood of our sacrifice or both. Even if I'm sacrificing for Vishnu, if I am do it with the mood of getting something from him, uh, that's not going to be pleasing. And if I sacrifice out of love for somebody other than Krishna, that's not going to be pleasing either. You know, I see sometimes, I do a lot of counseling with families, and I see sometimes people who felt you know, they were genuinely in love and they sacrificed everything. And then at a certain point, they figured out that the person to whom they gave everything in love wasn't worthy of that kind of love. The person disappointed them or cheated them in some way. And this is true whether the person you love is your spouse or your children or even your society, even your society of devotees. Yeah. You know, any other jiva, you know, even the even the guru, if you think the guru is Krishna, uh, even the other devotees. Of course, it's very interesting. We have this song, uh, Sri Rupa Manjari, uh, this wonderful song about love for one's, for another Vaishnava. And in Sri Rupa Manjari Pada, 
Padma, we find a description of love for between one jiva and another that basically sounds like the kind of love we should be giving for Krishna. So how can this be understood in line with Rupa Goswami's describing that prema is when all of your love is for Krishna and not for anybody else? And of course the answer to that is very simple, that if you love Krishna and you don't love everyone, anyone else other than Krishna, you only love Krishna, that all living entities being included in Krishna, then you actually love all living entities. But if you try to love another living entity first, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. One will be very disappointed. Prabhupada said, if a guru says, I am your best friend, they are a cheater. A guru says, Krishna is your best friend. Uh, We note that Prabhupada established an international society for Krishna consciousness, not for A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami (laughs) Prabhupada consciousness. And we also notice that Srila Prabhupada, very early in establishing his ISKCON movement, uh, worked to decentralize power and authority. In 1970, he set up a GBC. And Srila Prabhupada removed himself from a position of power and authority very early. He would tell people all the time, on this question, ask your local uh, temple president, ask your local GBC. It's their decision. Uh, Srila Prabhupada bent over backwards so as not to have some sort of personality cult. It's quite interesting if you study the sociology of religion. And that's one of the hallmarks of someone who actually sees that Krishna is Bhaktivedanta Krishna is the enjoyer of sacrifice, that even the guru, even though we see the guru as, we treat them with the same respect that we would treat God, that the Guru is acting as a transparent via medium, as Prabhupada explains nicely in the end of the Bhagavad Gita, that although your service goes to the Parampara, the experience is direct. So even when it comes to the Guru, one gives one's full faith and devotion to Guru, to the pure devotees, but really Krishna is the only object of love. Another analogy Srila Prabhupada gives is when you get married, that person's family becomes your family. But why? Because you're married to that person. You know, when you fall in love with the wife, so the wife's family becomes your family. When you you marry the husband, the husband's family becomes your family. Of course, today with so much divorce, that, uh, that situation often is one of the biggest problems of divorce. When people divorce, all of a sudden the rest of the family members on both sides are put into a very difficult situation. You know, if you've established a long-term loving relationship with your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law and now your family is divorced, what happens to that relationship? Uh, What happens to the relationship with your grandchildren and so forth and so on? And this is exactly the situation for the conditioned soul. The conditioned soul has divorced themselves from Krishna. Conditioned soul has gotten a divorce from Krishna and therefore their relationships with all of Krishna's parts and parcels is disturbed. And when you try to have your relationship with the parts and parcels separate from your relationship with Krishna, it's very awkward. You know, to have your relationship with your son-in-law who's now married, your former son-in-law who's now married to somebody else, and, you know, it's a mess. But when you have your relationship right with Krishna, then you also have a deep relationship of love with all other living entities. Anyway, that's sort of a side topic. But the idea is that one should be sacrificing for Krishna. 
and sacrificing for Krishna with love. That is real responsibility. And if I'm sacrificing for Krishna with love, I will enjoy my sacrifices and my responsibility. They will be pleasurable. And they'll be pleasurable without having any payment from any other jiva. So that is the point to which we should come. And when we feel pain because we don't have reciprocation from other jivas, which I have to admit I feel on a regular basis, then we should understand that that pain from lack of proper reciprocation from other jivas is not exactly the fault of the other jivas. Nor should we just respond to that by saying, well, I'm just not going to do any sacrifice or responsibility anymore because nobody reciprocates with me properly. Because, you know, I pay my money at the store, but I don't get the goods. But rather we need to, to see that our pain is not from the sacrifice, but is from having the wrong object of sacrifice, and it comes from or the wrong mood of sacrifice. So just a couple of other uh, side points. Sometimes I bring these up at the beginning of the class, but I decided that it's better teaching to bring them up at the end. So there's a couple of, of little side points that are not related to the main theme I touched upon that I thought we should look at. One is this ideal of stealing animals, women, and riches. So we have a list here. Animals, women, and riches will steal. And it's possible to look at something like that and say, oh, the Shamaka Rishi considered that women were in the same category as money and animals, that they were just some sort of property that could be stolen. I don't read this like in that way. But I read this more, just like we know in the world today, there's places, say, for example, some of the African countries where there's been ongoing civil wars and ongoing just chaos, and one of the things that happens is that women are stolen. People will go into a a village, they'll kill the men, and they'll take the women. And they'll uh, basically make the women into sexual slaves. And this is also happening, you know, I don't think there's there's any place in the world where slavery is now legal. Might be, but not as far as I know. But there's still quite a slave trade that goes on, and it's mostly uh, sexual slaves. It's mostly people who are forced into direct sexual service or forced to be prostitutes and turn the money over to someone else. And most of those people, of course, are women. Uh, some of them are men. Uh, that's another topic. But most of them are women. So this concept that women can be stolen is happening even in our modern society. That does not mean that Chamakarishi thinks that women are objects, but it means he recognizes that other people may see that way and steal women. Another point, another very sub-point here, is the word parasparam, between one another. So this reminded me of Machjita Magadhaparam, and I remember our, my god brother Garuda Prabhu saying how one time he, that an academic was arguing with him that the idea of a Sangha of Vaishnavas is something recent. That bhakti, that yo, any kind of yoga is really a solitary affair. And there's no precedent for a Sangha in the ancient Vedic tradition. And Garuda Prabhu said, what about this word parasparam? between one another. So that Krishna was talking about in the Bhagavad Gita that the devotees like to come together. So the sweetest way that we can do this sacrifice we're talking about is, of course, the Sankirtan sacrifice. That is the sweetest of all sacrifices, and that is a sacrifice parasparam. That's a sacrifice between one another. So rather than killing and harming one another, as described in this verse which is ultimately what happens in a society of of thieves 
and irresponsibility. If, if we really want to do the great sacrifice, then between one another, parasparam, we will be engaged in Krishna Kata and then Tushyanticha Ramanticha. We will feel great satisfaction and bliss. Okay, I'm going to ask for questions. And after all these years, I've always felt really close to him, but it's always been awkward because by continuing my relationship with him, it made it awkward with my sister, and everything got screwed up. So I, I really like that. I really like that analogy. It really, um, it made a lot of sense. And I guess the you know the opposite of that is true. When we reestablish our relationship with Krishna, then automatically all our connection, eternal connection with all living beings, becomes reestablished. Yes, and that's really. I like that. Thank you. Hi, Krishna, Mother Amala. Hi, Krishna. I have a question. Earlier in the talk, you mentioned that um, we have to learn how to love Krishna first before we love the jivas. Am I correct? Yes, definitely. Okay, so my question is that, um, and I've heard this before, and I, I understand that, but at the same time, it's like I've, I've seen um, where there, how do we do this without being, having harsh dealings with others? Like, because I see people going, oh, well, I don't have to be a a good mother to my child. I'm just going to go off and serve Krishna on book distribution or something. And then the kids left crying and in stoolic diapers. Or um, I'm not going to be taking care and being looking at the needs of my family and doing my duty because, you know, I'm not going to be loving them like that because first I have to learn how to love Krishna. I'm, you know, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, well, that's... Actually, you know, there are some times when that sort of response is appropriate. So that kind of response is appropriate when you're old. And then you say, I'm taking sannyas, and I'm just going to, you know, devote myself directly to Krishna, and I'm not going to, whatever happens, happens. You know, when Prabhupada became a Vanaprastha, he still had one unmarried daughter. And he was very much in anxiety about getting her married. Of course, he had tried to get her married many times. His wife had always opposed it. And as far as I know, she never married. Prabhupada blamed his wife. He said that she simply wanted to have keep the daughter around as a servant. But finally, Prabhupada decided it's time to go. I think he was 54. He said, it's time to go, and if I died, Krishna would take care of my daughter, and so Krishna's going to take care of my daughter. So there is a time when it's appropriate to do that, when the Pandavas decided that they were going to retire from running the government. And then Yudhisthira wandered like a deaf and dumb and blind person. And he took, and even they took no responsibility for Draupadi. She came of her own free will without any consideration that they were going to take care of her. She simply followed behind. And when she fell on the way, they kept going. So there is a, there is a time and a place for that kind of renunciation. Like Bhaktivinoda Kura in the last four years of his life entered into Nirjana Bhajan. Nirjana means without people. Of course, then you're internally with the people of Goloka Vrindavan. 
So there is a time and a place for that kind of renunciation, where you say, uh, for example, the our Varna duties, Varna means how you make a livelihood. That's for the Grahastha ashram. Once you enter the Vanaprastha or Sannyasa ashram, you're not supposed to do anything to earn a livelihood anymore. It's why Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati gave up his astrology business when he became a sannyasi, not because it was something inherently wrong with astrology, but because a sannyasi is not supposed to have some sort of money-making business, not supposed to have an occupation, gives up his varna. Which is, by the way, on a side note, one of the benefits of the Grahastha ashram. The Grahastha ashram is the only ashram where you can fully use all of your psychophysical tendencies in Krishna's service. You cannot do so in the renounced ashram. So also, if you're in the renounced ashram, you give up your Grihastha duties. So they're given up partially in the Varnaprastha ashram, or they can be, and they're given up completely in the Sannyasa ashram. I mean, having said that, Srila Prabhupada did, once he had uh, disciples who would be giving him money, he did make a financial arrangement for his former wife. But he did not do that. In his first ten years of renunciation, he didn't have the means to do that. So there is some place for that. There is a. It's not that walking away externally from everything is always wrong. There's a time, in fact, when it should be done. Prabhupada said, just like a shop, at a certain time they close the doors. I'm so we've been in a store where all of a sudden they turn off the lights and they make an announcement. The store is closing in five minutes. Get out of the aisles and come to the checkout and make your purchases and get out of the store. You know, they probably don't say that quite as crassly but you know we're closing and you got to get out of here so there might be more people coming to buy something oh well too bad so Prabhupada compares that to renunciation that at a certain time of life there's still this and Prabhupada said like when the man wants to take sannyas he'll go to his wife and say can I take sannyas I've done my duties to the family for 40 years and she'll say, what have you done? You haven't done anything. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? This still needs to be done. That still needs to be done. So Ravinda Suprabhu once gave a, a very nice, I think it was a class, maybe it was an article, that basically sannyas is dying before dying. That Because all of us have to do this at death, no matter how pressing anything is, no matter how many responsibilities that we have, that at the time of death, death is Krishna. We simply have to surrender to Krishna. And whatever else is there, undone, half done, whatever. You know, if we're, don't, if we're not going to run to the forest and leave our japatis on the stove for the Rasalila, then we're going to go to death and leave our japatis on the stove. At some point we do that. Now, on the other hand, if that's not the right time, if you're not ready for Vanaprastha, if you're not ready for sannyas, if you're not at the right age, if you still have a desire to enjoy the psychophysical benefits of a varna, if you still have a desire to enjoy the pleasures of the grahasta ashram, then you better sacrifice for it. And we've seen so many people who said, oh, I'm going to actually just uh, leave everything externally and surrender to Krishna. But they weren't really on that platform. They still wanted to, they still had a need to express their psychophysical nature in terms of work. And they still had a need to relate to family. And so they weren't able to maintain their position of renunciation. It wasn't real, it wasn't genuine, and they caused so many problems. And if one does that, then my understanding is you are held responsible. 
You're held responsible for all the harm that you do to others. And to harm others in the name of Krishna consciousness when you're not really at the proper time to be renounced is a very sinful thing. That is stealing. And whether you steal because you're an out-and-out materialist or whether you steal in the name of God and Krishna consciousness, stealing is stealing. In fact, I'd say to steal in the name of Krishna consciousness in one sense is worse. Now, of course, people in the beginning tend to be fanatics and, and think that Krishna consciousness means I should act like I'm a renounced sannyasi, you know, a renounced 78-year-old sannyasi who's actually finished his business when I'm only 22 years old. Uh, so there may be some excuse from Krishna and from the universal controllers for immature fanaticism. But in general, we should be honest. And if this is my stage of life, if this is my situation, then I should do it nicely. From a transcendent point of view, we see what is my service. And my service, by the way, is related. If I'm, if I'm conditioned, it's related to my particular state of advancement also. So I see my actual state of advancement. I'm honest about what I want to enjoy. And then I do it as a service. Otherwise, if I'm trying to enjoy things without doing them nicely as a service, I'm a thief. So a service means that I take wonderful care of my family members. I take better care of them than a materialist. Because I'm not taking care of my family members anymore because I want something from them which sometimes I get and sometimes I don't. A materialist, if their family members are nice to them, they serve them. And when their family members are not nice to them, they say, oh, I'm not going to serve them anymore. But somebody who's in bhakti yoga, if they're serving their family or their job, their employer or their whatever, as their service to Krishna. This is Krishna's given me these jivas to deal with, and I have some business here. Now, maybe I have this service because of my own attachments, but Krishna's turned my attachments into service. It's a nice quote where Prabhupada says that Krishna turns all of our impediments into service. So the difficulties in Bhaktivinoda Thakur said, the difficulties that I encounter I see as my service. So yes, we're in this situation because of our material attachments. Okay. Great. If I didn't have any material attachments, I wouldn't even be in the material world. All right, fine. Let me be honest about my material attachments. You know, I want to eat pizza. I like pizza. So let me offer it to Krishna, and then eating pizza becomes a service. You know, that's the beauty of bhakti yoga. But if I'm not honest about it, if I say, well, you know, pizza is sense gratification, or if you're a real Vedic person, we make it samosas. Okay, so samosas and gulabjamins, you know, that's that's all sense gratification. But if we're actually on the platform that we need that kind of sense gratification, then, you know, we'll be offering Krishna unsalted kitri, and then we'll be going to the store and buying a chocolate bar. Because we're not satisfied. What does repression accomplish? It just can't do it. So be, be honest with ourselves. Very hard to be honest with ourselves. Be honest with ourselves. What is my position? And then turn that into service. And at a certain point, for the greatly advanced devotees, Krishna says they have no reason to do their work and they have no reason to give up their work. So even if you have no more attachment, you still may be given as a service something that would normally be given to someone out of attachment. So Maharaj Yudhisthira was the emperor of the world, not because he was attached to enjoying being the king, not because he had a certain material, psychophysical nature and material attachments, but only as a service. 
although to the external eye it didn't look that much different than somebody who was doing it out of attachment but you know Thakur took care of his family also as a service so if one really is on a higher platform then one has to decide what is my service Krishna says you have no more reason to do it and you have no more reason to give it up you don't have a reason to do either so then you see what does Krishna want me to do you know, if you're 34 and you have three young children and a young spouse and you've reached a level of spiritual advancement where you no longer have any material attachments, then you have to look at it, okay, what's my service? Is my service to stay in this situation and do it as an example, yad yad or is my service to leave and set an example of renunciation? What is my service? And that's going to be on an individual basis, just like Mahaprabhu gave different devotees individual instructions. But that's a, we're, of course, now talking about people who are actually liberated. If we're not liberated, then we have to be honest. And mistreating people and being irresponsible in the name of service is, is really, from a logical point of view, absurd. So, Krishna, in the name of serving you, I'm going to mistreat your jivas that you've given me to take care of. To take care of. Imagine if you're working for a company and, and you're, the company president says, okay, I want you to manage this department. And then you mistreat all the people in your department. You don't give them the facility they need and you yell at them and scream at them. I mean, I don't think that's going to make the boss happy. And you say, well, I don't care about you guys. I only need to please my boss. You know, you yell at the customers and <laughs> your customers come and you yell at them and you say, I don't care what you think. I just got to please the boss. Well, but I think... Pleasing the boss is supposed to include pleasing the customers and is supposed to include pleasing your co-workers and, and doing your job nicely. So that's a very long answer, uh, but I hope, I hope I've looked at it from all the different angles of vision. Yeah, thank you, Mother Irma. Can I just ask one little question? Yeah, sure. At what point are we still responsible for our children? Prabhupada says until they get married. Well, no, I mean, we have children, and some of us have adult children, like in their 30s or whatever. Are we still responsible? Prabhupada says you're responsible for your children until they're married. Oh, until they're married. Okay. But after you're married, you're not responsible for them anymore. Now, suppose they don't get married. Of course, if they take sannyas, then you're not responsible for them either. And in modern society, when there are a whole lot of people that neither marry or take sannyas, then I guess you'd have to think of it in terms of age. Of course, uh, I'd say that most of us, even though we have adult children who are married, we may still voluntarily help them out. I mean, I think that's just sort of normal. But we're not responsible anymore. It's not, it's, it's not really a matter of, of this is our specific prescribed duty. So that can be there, just like in traditional societies, the grown-up children lived with the parents, generally the boys' parents, not always. Uh, Sarvabhama Bhattacharya's daughter and son-in-law was being maintained by him. So you do have some situations, again, especially in traditional society, where there were extended families. And certainly the grandparents and the aunts and uncles were still helping each other, even though the children were grown and married. Uh, but still, Prabhupada says the responsibility for your children ends when they're married. So, to put those two things together. Thank you, Mother Armala. You are most welcome. Mataji? Yes. I beg your pardon ahead of time for bringing this point, but I certainly think that maybe in ISKCON we need to clarify this more because you seem to have uh, um, 
sugar-coated this statement about women not being part of the um, of things. Yes, stolen along with animals and things, but you know, there's contradictory um, information in regards to that, as you already know. They're considered, women is usually considered property of men, and we have the example of so many women uh, win over by certain kings. The example is uh, what is forcefully, Bishma, they're forcefully bringing those girls the princesses and uh, you know, number of women. So I'm, I mean, you in a position where you can clearly clarify this from understanding this statement from Krishna conscious point of view, because the statements are there in Mani Samudayama, the scriptures of women as being part of uh, the property of uh, men. Yeah, well, I guess you could look at it from a positive way that people see women as a kind of wealth. But the tendency to see women as objects is very strong for a conditioned soul. Just like the tendency to see animals as objects is very strong for a conditioned soul. And I take it as significant that in this verse, animals and women are put in the same category in, in in this context. And I see a direct correlation between meat-eating and exploitation of women. In both cases, you're thinking that another living entity, because they don't have as much power as you have, and women do not have as much power as men, end of discussion. Uh, You think that someone who doesn't have as much power as you have means that you can exploit them. Now, women particularly are taken as an object because our whole existence in this world is trying to imitate Krishna. And Krishna is the enjoyer of opulences. All the opulences, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. Opulences are Shri. Shri is Lakshmi Devi. doesn't just mean wealth, but all the opulences. Or Srimati Radharani. So rather than giving the opulences to Krishna, we want to take them. Every conditioned soul is more or less Ravana. I want to take Sita from Ram and enjoy her for myself. So this takes two forms. One is it takes the form that the the jiva takes the form of a so-called male. And this so-called male then wants to enjoy a female, or if they could get away with it, many females. They want to control and enjoy the female, the opulence. And therefore, in order to try to control and enjoy someone like that, they see them as an object. And it also takes the form of a jiva who takes the form of a female that I want to enjoy by being that. You know, I want to own a female as my wife or girlfriend, or I want to own a female as my own body. So whether one is in a male form or a female form in this world, the consciousness is I want to enjoy the female. I want to take the position of the enjoyer. And the men do that by seeing a jiva in a woman's body as an object, and a jiva in a woman's body does it by seeing her own body as an object to control men. 
So there are many women, not only in modern society, but from the beginning of time, who like to present themselves as an object of enjoyment. And that way they get to fulfill their desires by manipulating men and men who like to see women as objects of enjoyment. You could say that our basic disease is I want to be the Purusha. I want to be Krishna and I want to enjoy Prakriti. I want to enjoy Sri. I want to enjoy opulences. I want them to belong to me, either in the body of another person that I can control as my wife or girlfriend, or in my own body that I can control, which I see as an even greater attachment. So one who takes the body of a woman generally has an even greater attachment than one who has the body of a man to enjoy nature. I want to enjoy nature myself. I want to control nature so much myself that I have it as my own body rather than the body of someone else. So this objectifying of the female is, you could say, the essence of materialistic consciousness. In fact, the whole material nature, Prakriti, is a person. She is Vaishnavi. She's the sister of Vishnu. Uh, and she's a, she's a great devotee. She's a person. She has feelings. She has desires. She's in the mood of service to Krishna. But when we're conditioned so, we see her as an object. So we see the whole material nature as dead matter. We see the whole material nature as an object for our enjoyment. We see the material nature as wealth that I can... My day is married to Shiva. We see the whole material nature as simply an object for our enjoyment. We see it as dead matter. It's not. Sarvakalamidam Brahma. One who has transcendental vision sees that everything, even so-called matter, is actually spiritual. So this concept of prakriti as object, which then translates into uh, females of your species as object, is the essence of our material disease. It's, of course, quite interesting, if we'll use that word, that even among religious and spiritual societies, there is a large tendency to objectify women. That when people say, okay, I want to reestablish my relationship with Krishna as a servant, I want to again remember that I am Prakriti and he is the Purusha, this tendency to want to be the Purusha and therefore to see Prakriti as object tends to persist for quite some time. And we see that even in religious and spiritual societies, uh, that very, very quickly, very, very quickly, they return to this idea of objectifying women, and they do it in the name of religion. So you can find, you know, Srila Prabhupada, as our Acharya, the way he dealt with women was he treated the women equally to the men spiritually. And you'll find so many statements by him and so many examples but we saw that many of his leading followers did not do that. That many of his leading followers, in the name of spirituality, treated the women as objects. And very predictably, that view of treating the women as objects became to some extent a part of the culture of the Vaishnav Sangha. So very quickly, the culture of the Vaishnava the culture of the Acharya became twisted 
into something materialistic in the name of religion. And that doesn't just happen in ISKCON, but it happens in Islam, and it happens in Christianity, and it happens in Judaism, and it happens everywhere. Muhammad's first disciple was a woman. Muhammad gave women equal spiritual rights, but within a hundred years after his leaving, that was gone. And people returned to their treatment of women as objects, and they made it part of Islam. They, they worked it into Islam as if it was part of the religion. Uh, we think of Jesus with Mary and Magdalene and, and how he treated women and how then later the, uh, just with his grand disciple, as with Paul, he said the women shouldn't preach in the church. So very quickly after the disappearance of Jesus, this objectifying of women and exploitation of women was again reestablished as part of the religion. So this goes on everywhere. And we should expect that it goes on. Because as soon as you see a woman as a soul, as soon as a woman sees herself as a soul, that kind of exploitation cannot go on. That kind of objectification, objectification cannot go on. Just like with animals, you cannot eat animals once you understand that they're a living being with feelings and desires just like me. Just can't. You can't hold those two things at the same time. So on advanced levels of consciousness, that doesn't happen. But on the lower levels of consciousness, it does happen. And when people take to a spiritual process, one of the greatest, how would we say, threats. <laughs> you know, you say, I want to surrender to Krishna. And Prabhupada says that's like declaring war on illusion. And the essence of illusion is that I am the Purusha and Prakriti is my enjoyable object. That's the essence of illusion. So as soon as you declare war on illusion, that's the main area where she's going to counterattack. And she's very clever that she can clothe that consciousness in religion itself. <laughs> well, you're not going to conquer it then because you're, instead of thinking it's something to be conquered, you think it's something to be proud of. That's the whole nature of an artist. The reason we don't get rid of our artists, any of them, the essence of which is wanting to be the Purusha, and all the other Anartas are sub-branches. But the reason we don't get rid of our Anartas is we don't see that they're Anartas. We see that they're artists. We see that there's something valuable. And the best way to see that you're Anartas or something valuable is to cover them up in religion. Take your material attachments, take your nonsense, take your garbage, and put a... a dress of Krishna consciousness on top of it and then you'll never see it for what it is so that's the tactic of Maya you know it's <laughs> she's very clever and, and I will say from my own personal experience that when you see that one of these Krishna conscious covered illusions when you see it for what it is it's very shocking you know, when you see that this thing that I thought was part of Krishna consciousness that I was nourishing and I was proud of and I thought it was some kind of diamond that I was offering to my guru and one day you, you, the, the, that which is not is, is removed and you look at it and you see it's not a diamond, it's a piece of poop. It's, it's quite shocking and it's quite humbling. It's quite devastating. And the fact that such things happen is to be expected 
that each of us on an individual level most likely is taking something that's really a material attachment and, and a perversion and a and something disgusting and we're covering it with an illusion of it being part of our spiritual process. So that happens on an individual basis and it definitely happens on a collective basis. It's one of the main weapons in which illusion twists and perverts our effort to be Krishna conscious. So I think it's about 8 o'clock now and we should end. Thank you very much. All glories to Shri Prabhupada.